I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is a British journalist, best-selling author, and a speaker. Helen Russell was formerly the editor of MarieClaire.co.uk. She worked as a correspondent for The Guardian and wrote a long-standing column for The Telegraph. She now writes for magazines and newspapers around the world, but I feel she's focused a lot more on publishing new books at a very, very fast rate. Helen's first book was an international bestseller, The Year of Living Danishly, Uncovering the Secrets of the World's Happiest Country. I wonder actually if Denmark is the world's happiest country, truly so, that definitely is a topic that I intend to talk to her about today. She is also the author of two more non-fiction titles, Leap Year and The Atlas of Happiness, And her debut novel, Gone Viking, was published in 2018 as a result of a very interesting and unique experience. I think we will have a wonderful, enlightening and light conversation today. You seem to be a writing machine. Like seven years, is it, since your first book? I wrote it in 2013. It came out in 2015. Okay, so in five years, you have five books out. Yes. What is wrong with me? Tell me openly. No. Well, I had a bit of a burnout. 2018, I had two books out and that was too much, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. But I wanted it for so long. I wanted books and babies was all I ever wanted. And I think I could have either. And then I got both and I was so grateful. Um, So yeah, that's, yeah. How do you write? Teach me. I mean, forget the podcast now. They may be listening to us. But seriously, so I followed your story. And so you were constantly writing, even when before you wrote books, you were writing for, you know, magazines and newspapers and so on. So it seems that you breathe a little, eat a little and write a little, right? This this is your normal day. Yeah. But then you are a mother of three Mm -hmm. and you're still writing, not just books, you're writing other stuff. You seem to be a very hardworking individual. So you shared in one of those little interviews once how you just took the first jobs that came to you. You needed to pay the rent. You were working and studying for your post-grad. And even when you were taking rest for your first pregnancy, which I thought was fantastic when you said the story, I'm a small woman, so pregnancy of a twins was very, you know, but you still wrote a full book when you were in bed gone Viking. So that's right. what's up? Well, actually that one, I was so, I am used to being busy and I'm sort of naturally caffeinated. And (laughs) on bed rest was something that I just wasn't used to at all. I've always hooned about. I I can't wear high heels. I have to wear comfortable shoes because I go everywhere fast. And suddenly to be actually be on bed rest and proper bed rest where I was getting bed sores, I couldn't move. So actually my imagination was all I had. And when I couldn't run and jump and do all of the things that I knew were really important for my mental health, I made characters do it. And I didn't know if I could write a novel, but it was a time when I couldn't do anything else. So I thought, well, this could be a good chance to try. And in general, you're very hardworking. Even though you talk about happiness and chill and the Danish way and all of that, you have that work ethic of like, I'm going to produce something almost every day. Isn't that how you are? It's not far off. I'm very strict that I don't normally work evenings and I don't work weekends. And since having kids, that's, I don't want to instrumentalize my children, but certainly that has given me another focus. And I think if I didn't have a family, I might work far too much. But I think I was an only child raised in Margaret Thatcher's Britain in the home counties that sort of work ethic was what you did and I and I think it's I've had lots of therapy over the years I think it's that sort of am I good enough and and trying to prove it a lot of the time so you are so good you're way better than good enough you're very kind true but it's a very interesting one and it's something I've I've written about 
and researched a lot more recently, and I've spoken to actually some of your former guests about this. I spoke to Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar a lot about the pursuit of perfect and, and actually this idea that if I get this, then I'll be at peace. And that's never the case. That's not how it works. So I think I have to work on trying not to be too busy and I have to be mindful and all the things that I learn are really helpful because they don't come naturally to me. So trying to relax more and trying to take on the lessons that I'm learning from the great people who I meet and work with are really helpful. That is amazing. In an interesting way, you permission to speak freely. I'm not a huge believer in the idea that Northern Europe is the happiest place on earth. Actually, Denmark is probably the happiest of all four of them. But I look at statistics around suicide rates and Belgium and Norway are really, really high. As a matter of fact, I think Belgium is 31 in suicide rate across the world and 19th across for women. So 19th is quite, quite high for females. And Norway is not much further, 39 and 36. Now, when you wrote Living Danishly, I was like, I don't really think they're that happy. But then you took a very interesting view of it. You were not talking about subjective well-being like everyone else is. You were talking about things like trust and family and work-life balance and so on and so forth. So from one side, I want to ask you first openly, do you actually believe they're the happiest people in the world? And second is what makes them happier than others? I believe they're happier than others. I think, um, yeah, it's, as I'm always at pains to say, it's not some sort of utopia with unicorns skipping on rainbows, but they are pretty happy. And having and thinking about the other Scandinavian countries that have more extremes in one way or another. So for example, Norway, I traveled to Norway for research over the years and it's very beautiful and they have like free love to live, this free air life, this emphasis on the outdoor life. They have some things that are, would appear to give them a better chance of happiness than say the Danes, but also the weather is so extreme that when it's really cold, I was there and it was sort of minus 20 and you can't spend much time outside. I have Raynards, my eyelashes froze open. <laughs> In that respect, it can be as beautiful as it likes. But if, it's, if the weather is so inclement often that you can't be getting those endorphins and getting all those positive things from being outside and doing all the things that you know are good for you, then yeah. it doesn't really matter. And I think Denmark... It has the trust, as you say. It has still this idea of being part of something, being part of the Nordic country. So they don't feel alone. They feel very safe and they're very small. And they've been conquered a lot over the years and haven't had an empire for so long. There is a sense that, whereas compared to the UK, there's still this sort of legacy of empire, which brings a whole host of problems. <laughs> I know. It is crazy when you think about it. Yeah. Denmark are sort of used to, they don't think they're anything special in many ways, although they are very proud of their happiness rankings. So it's a different idea of happiness, I guess. And you and I will both know that compared to the, maybe the Disney or the American idea or, or the kind of the happiness for a privileged few where it's a society where some people do brilliantly and others really struggle. It's just fairer. It's not perfect. It's not for everyone. There are still loads of problems. And I've just written a new chapter for the year of living Danishly talking about, you know, a little bit of the dark side and that it does have a diversity problem. It has a problem with racism in common with many countries around the world. It's not perfect by any means, but more people get more of a fair deal in Denmark. So I think it's an even keel a bit more. And fairness does matter, by the way. We should come back to talk about this. I just want to tell you that my first introduction to Norway, the first time I landed, I landed on the day of spring. So it was basically the day where sort of everything started to be sunny and bright and and I was like, these are the nicest humans on the planet. I mean, that day I was treated so well. Everyone was smiling at me in the streets and everyone was laughing so much in the meetings. It was like, oh my God, this is my favorite. That's hilarious. No way. And then I went, the second time I went was, I think, November or something like that. So just about the time when you've had enough of the snow. It's been snowing for a while and now you're like about... I'm not fully skiing yet, but this is becoming annoying and the days are becoming longer. I understood what you just said. It was like, okay, it's hard to be happy. We're nice people, okay? But it's really hard to smile all the time now. It's, you know, there is a lot of external pressure on us to be unhappy. I will, however, say Denmark 
is quite cute is the description I have. It's like, it's a small place where they keep a lot of things simple, if you know what I mean. And I think that idea of safety, to feel safe with your government, to feel safe about your neighbors, to feel safe that if you go home at four o'clock to pick your kids from school, it's actually okay. I think this idea is probably at the heart of what makes them one of the happier nations. Would you agree? Yeah, I think the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that, that the basic stuff is taken care of. So if you know you've basically got a mandated work-life balance because that's what your company will demand of you, that's what the society demands of you, you know you're going to have some time for leisure and some time for your family and that it is fairly safe. And of course, there are places where, where it isn't so safe. But generally, I mean, our neighbours just moved house and my kids were so used to going in and out of their house. They've rather baffled the new neighbours who don't have any kids by just sort of running in. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Whereas I came from London, the idea that you would let your kids anywhere out of your sight, I don't know how well equipped Danish kids are to be anywhere else in the world. But <laughs> until they're adults, then they're fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. It takes that anxiety away. I think it gives you the headspace to be happy because you're not anxious all the time. And I think, you know, trust is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you trust the people around you, they're likely to behave better. Mm. I agree fully. I mean, when you think of uh, that concept of safety, when I read your work, it just triggered the idea of some societies where it's not even safe, but people still feel safe. So, you know, one of my favorite, probably in my top three favorite peoples on earth is Colombians. And my experience in Medellin when I went, you know, which was subjected to the violence of Pablo Escobar and so on, and the positivity of people and the trust in between them, even though they've been subjected to so much that should scare them, is probably one of the biggest reasons why they're so happy and so infectiously happy, right? They also don't make a lot of money, but at the same time, they sort of feel like it's going to be okay. And you said that actually in Living Danishly, it's that they sort of feel it's going to be fine. You know, things are going to be okay. So I like that very much. But I wonder, I wonder if anyone actually is safe at all, more than others. I mean, of course, there are cities that are much less safe, but isn't that safety something that we should inherently work on ourselves, not just because of the external environment? Do you mean in terms of whether we perceive that we're safe, whether or not we are more or less safe than somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, can we tell ourselves? Our brains will tell us that we're less safe than we actually are. Is there a way for us to say, no, actually, we're okay. I mean, it's not that bad. It's not that risky. Is safety an illusion and is risk an exaggeration of the brain? I'm sure both of those things are true, but I would say that having, I'm still a big consumer of British media and podcasts and having... Bad idea. Listened to a lot of, well, but having listened to a lot, a lot of podcasts... Podcasts are great. Now. Podcasts are great, but British media... Okay, oh yeah. Oh my God, scary. Yeah, scary. Yeah, but so listening to a lot of, I guess, people whose opinions I'm interested in talking about what's going on in the UK and the US and hearing about this perception of risk. And, and I'm well versed in, you know, negativity bias. And I know that that is a, something that our brains do. And for good reason to, you know, historically, it was probably a good idea to be wear, more wary of things. But genuinely, after having spent almost eight years in Denmark now, I do feel safe. So it must be something societal as well. And studies have shown that people who move to Denmark from low trust societies end up adopting Danish levels of trust. And I think in some terms, and I am hugely privileged in that I am, I am white and I'm middle class and I could pass as Danish should I choose. And if my language wasn't so terrible and it's not, <laughs> my experience isn't the same as for anyone who, everyone who comes here, but I do feel safe. So I think whenever I hear People from the UK, for example, saying, well, you know, we feel more unsafe than ever before, but actually statistics show. And I think, well, in Denmark, I'm really lucky because statistics show it is pretty safe. And also I feel safe. So I'm very grateful for that. Let's continue the tour around the world. So the Atlas of Happiness is, there are some interesting practices, but I want to start from the UK. Let's talk about the happiness of the UK. Now that you know it as a native, what's going on there? So for the UK, so the Atlas of Happiness, I was looking at the unique cultural concepts around the world that help people not only stay happy, whether they're at the top of the happiness leagues or not, but also that keep people going. So they can be coping mechanisms that can be more or less healthy. For instance, the, the Finnish one is about drinking at home alone in your underwear. Nobody's saying that that's healthy, but that is a, <laughs> a, a unique thing that get, helps get people through Kalsarikani. And in the UK, I went with Jolly. 
which I was mostly teased about in many quarters, but there is something about cheerfulness and Julie Andrews, you know, Mary Poppins days or Sound of Music days. And this sort of, I've been listening to a lot of Dawn French this week and there's something about this, well, everything can be falling apart, but we will see the funny side and we will smile. And sometimes I think that means certainly as Brits that we are almost allergic to earnestness. And I've certainly been guilty of that. that oh, wow. That's a big statement. I mean, I've been trying to have serious conversations with people, WhatsApp group friends in the UK this week. We just can't resist and things turn into jokes that really should be taken a little bit more seriously. And having worked now on sadness and the importance of that, I see that jolliness isn't perhaps the most healthy coping strategy, but it's one that Brits have used for a long time. And I think English in particular because we can talk about the different parts of the United Kingdom and, and there are specific other, perhaps more meaningful coping techniques used there. But jolliness is certainly this, oh, slap on a smile, it'll be fine, make a joke. Yes, exactly. And my father-in-law, for example, will not talk about his own mental health, but if there are any problems in his life, he will refer to it by way of the dog's bowels. So he'll say, oh, the dog's not feeling well today, when you know something terrible has happened. And that <laughs> is the code that you will know something has happened, rather than emoting and being earnest. I have to tell you openly, and the risk of upsetting, I have a, quite a large following in the UK, So I have one of my startups is very active in the UK. So I have a small team there and so on and so forth. And when I would be in that office before lockdown, every now and then I would walk in and go like, and I know that sounds horrible. I would walk into the room and say, what's wrong with you Brits? Like openly, I mean, like, why doesn't anyone tell me when things are wrong? Like someone needs to, t it's okay to tell me that something's wrong. People will always hint to it. You know, they'll say, I remember in one meeting when someone, I asked, should I talk about this? Is it okay to talk about this? And the answer was, if you must. And in my mind, it meant if you want to talk about it, talk about it. If you must, turns out to be like, no, 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 don't talk about it. <laughs> what? You should have just told me no. It's really much easier that way. I found Iceland to be quite interesting. It will all work out, was your observation there. What does that mean? Yeah, so Tasha Radost, or it'll all be okay in the end, it really summarizes the Viking spirit. And Iceland, I find such a fascinating place. Talking about Norway, I mean, that's another place you're essentially living in a fridge most of the year. <laughs> exactly. But Iceland has always topped the happiness polls. And um, I found it really interesting. I was, when I was doing my interviews, I found that NASA fed, sent the first Apollo astronauts to Iceland to train for the moon landing because it's a landscape so inhospitable, so unlike <laughs> ad hoc uh, solar free or sun holiday to celebrate. They get a day off work if it's an Icelandic heat wave, which is only 18 degrees Celsius. Oh my, all right, all right. It's very inhospitable, but they have this Viking spirit, this idea that it'll all work out. And I think, well, research has shown that a lot of this has to do with books, which I love and I'm quite fascinated, <laughs> but Icelanders are also the biggest readers in the world. And as you all know, like brain scans show that when we read, we mentally rehearse the activities, sights and sounds of the story and stimulate neural pathways and it improves empathy and even scaring stories can boost endorphins as we get ready to fight off imagined pain in real life. And they have a really rich kind of legacy of fairy tales and elves. There's some statistic, I'd have to check it, but I think it's something like half of all Icelanders believe in elves. There's this real sense of the magic. That's true. <laughs> it's just a beautiful way of living. Do you believe in elves? I don't believe in elves. Oh, I'm come on, don't, don't break our hearts. Like The child in me would love to believe in elves with their tiny little clothes. You know, the scientific method will tell you that you can't prove they don't exist. Yeah, maybe that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you, you have to believe that they're possible because if one exists, like black swans, right? Remember uh, Nassim Taleb's work? Like if one black swan shows up, then it disproves the idea that swans are white. And you go to uh, St. James's Park and suddenly there are the Queen's black swans. And I'm like, whoa, seriously, you know, this is, it exists, right? So there yeah. might be eggs. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. And Santa might be true too. Well, this is what I'm very much keeping that myth alive for. <laughs> At home. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Greeks? Yeah, Greeks. And, you know, Greece is a country that's been through a lot and been through so much. And, and I think the legacy of the myths, which I'm currently teaching my son, which is really interesting and trying to um, slightly child-friendly, some of them, but 
there's an okayness with drama that we don't perhaps have in the UK. And so Meraki was the concept I focused on in Greece, this idea of having a labor of love or a hobby that you do, you pour your whole heart into. And it's not something you do whilst multitasking with a phone in your hand. Uh, it's something you, you single task. And, you know, studies show that when we single task, we are it's much better for us. Uh, we think we're good at multitasking. We're not. We're all terrible at it. Not, yeah. And and also, I think hobbies are, are just something I'm increasingly the older I get feeling are so important to just do something for the heck of it, whether or not we are good at it. And as I shared with you, you know, I am, I am somebody who is driven and I want to be busy and I want to do well, but having a hobby that it doesn't matter if I'm terrible at, but I do it because I love it. So I have an easel in the corner of this room. I try to paint and it's terrible, but I love it. And there's something so soothing. There's so much science around the beauty of, of trying to create something and hobbies just for the sake of it. And Meraki in Greece, even if it's just laying the table with love and care or cooking something that's just full of love by the time you give it to someone else, I just think is so beautiful. And the Greeks who I spoke to just said it, it really does help them when things seem pretty bleak. Mm. I wonder why I didn't do my books the way you did. It's like, you just go and ask people and then write down what they tell you. That's, <laughs> that's, that's not a very difficult, I mean, I keep trying to analyze the whole like equation thing. Maybe I should just go ask people. I'm not undermining that at all. Actually, there is so much wisdom in that. You know, the truth is... But that's what you're doing on this podcast, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. You're just telling the whole world now. I mean, like, seriously, I'm sitting here enjoying it. I have to tell you though, Helen, I made a very, very conscious decision before we started this conversation, which I've never done before. Normally when I get a guest, I want to talk about all of their work. For you specifically, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about leap year because I have found so much inspiration in the 10 ways that you listed. You call them the 10 ways to win with new beginnings. And to me, in a very interesting way, they so hit the point. It's almost like a, a realistic view of, look, this is it. This is how things go. So would you mind if we spend a lot of time on this? Not at all. But I'm going to put it down because I don't sleep much these days. And uh, I wrote that a while ago, so I'm going to have it here. Okay, I, I wrote all of them down myself. So we started with Live Small. Yeah, so... And you've spoken a lot to people about that. But yeah, there's certainly something about giving yourself a sense of perspective. And again, from the Atlas of Happiness and traveling to Japan and the sense of being in nature and forest bathing and, and all of these things that we know it's so good for us to feel humble and feel insignificant. And whether that's staring up at a starry sky or just standing under an enormous tree and feeling like, oh, this tree's been here for hundreds of years. Really, it's, it's fine, whatever I do. And I think that's helpful now when we're trying to do the right thing and live good lives but also remember that we are part of something greater and all we can do is our best i was fascinated when i read this the first time the idea of living small if you ask me is almost the opposite of the western world's view of self-esteem it's like i'm a big thing look at me i've achieved i've succeeded i went through life i did better than the other guy i might not be the biggest thing on the planet but i'm bigger than 63 percent of them or something like that there is always that feeling of make yourself feel big and you're saying no 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 feel small i mean i write about that because i say look down which I think you cover a little later. But looking down, is, in my view, is to compare not how far up the path you haven't achieved yet, but basically looking down to say, I'm so much luckier than everyone else. But living small here goes layers deep. It really does go layers deep. Sometimes I, I think of the work I've done and I go like, yeah, but it's nothing. If I compare to the work that you've done and the work that Mark's done and the work that... No, but I think but you, you're very impressive. You must realize. But still, I mean, small is such an interesting place to be. It's to tell yourself, well, I'm literally, you call it insignificant. That's a very, very strong word. I think being in Denmark has helped with that. Because as I say, being raised in Margaret Thatcher's Britain, mm. it was as as we referred to, it's this idea of, of scrabbling to the top and working in, in magazines. Like I got to the job that I thought I wanted for years, but it didn't make me happy. And actually being in Denmark and paying the ridiculously high taxes and feeling like I'm a very small part of this machine that works. Yes. Right. So we are all 
contributing but I, I do not matter and also not to be facetious but I am small I'm quite small and so I'm used to, and especially in the land of Vikings I am small how small I'm not, I mean, I'm not ridiculously small but I don't know if I just hang around with tall people but I'm, I'm five foot three so most people are taller than me yes I just and also I spend a lot of time with very very small children or my knees are on the floor so I see things from a child's perspective. It's so cute. It's so incredibly interesting. It's so interesting. Yeah. yeah and I see things like I see that the underneath of shelves aren't painted and I see spider's webs around skirting boards and I wrestling on the floor a lot of the time. And it's really positive. I don't know who I'm going to do it with. My kids are bigger. But <laughs> get new ones. But then the question is, the question is, I find that feeling small is actually quite a positive feeling. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's the almost the opposite of what they tell us. It's the, they tell us, you know, you have to feel that you've achieved and that you're big and that you're something and significant. I think the feeling of insignificance is like, okay, I, that means I can try and I can't really mess anything up. And by the way, I'm never going to fix it anyway. You know, the world is so much bigger than me, so I might as well chill. And that's a big thing. And, you know, I know you've spoken very movingly to Elizabeth Day, who's wonderful, but that's, if we do feel big or if everything feels too important, then the fear of failure is so crippling. Whereas mm-hmm. I have certainly found like what with, I was working in women's magazines for years. And at that time, it's a little more nuanced now and people are more into sharing their authentic selves. But at that time, it was about the shiny lifestyle and promoting a very, very sort of positive, glamorous image. And when I wrote my first book, it was this idea that I put my heart on a plate. And if anybody read it, that would be great. I had no expectations. And when I had been so honest and so vulnerable, and then people liked it, that was, I guess it could inflate your ego. But what I found is that it just made me feel like, oh, it's okay. It was, I almost exhaled for the first time in 34 years. It was just oh, okay, I, I can be a mess and flawed and be doing my best, but be small and that's okay. That's so wonderful. That is so well said. And it is so realistic, which actually, again, is what I like most about those 10 points is how realistic and almost opposite the spiritual hacking approach to life. The second one, no fantasy filter. That also blows me away. So you know how... I call it spiritual hacking, but you know, all of those mantras of like, repeat this and everything's fun and, you know, you know, we tell ourselves sometimes things that are not really true. And what you're saying is, look, life is some joy, some fun, some mucus, some blood and some, right. And it's okay to see it that way. You can love it that way. That's a very profound statement. Yeah, so Leap Year came about because I had been delving into, you know, the science of happiness and then, as you say, some of these hacks. And then also um, my husband works in more the, like the world of business. So he would always bring back these business manuals and go on these business courses. And as you will have experienced in your time, there's some very interesting management techniques out there. And some of those I felt were helpful and some of those felt like people were just, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I could be cynical and think that they were just being written to sell lots of books. But I tried to see if I could marry the two really and just take the best from both worlds because I felt like actually the readership of one sort of book very seldom went for the readership of maybe sort of niche business books. So that's what I was aiming to do there. And then at the time, of course, yeah, social media just is showing this, this world. And I have several friends for whom there is, a, there is a direct correlation between how badly life is going in the real world and how much they are posting about lovely things on social media. So many of us do that. And it just seems daft. And I think, you know, loads of films and songs are about how you get to the place where you meet the one and then it never shows the bit where you're, yeah, as you say, cleaning up mucus or washing <laughs> the dishes or dealing with twins with diarrhea. It just doesn't show that. <laughs> exactly. And, and I just, it was things I wished I'd known really. Mm, because, you know, when you know them, you can deal with them. You can expect them. You, they don't become shocking anymore. It's like just part of the game, really. I do disagree with you. When you mentioned that, you said life is not like love, actually. Don't come near love, actually. Because love, love, my, actually. Oh, my goodness. That's my favorite comedy of all time. Oh, it's 
the problem with the Andrew Lincoln cards, I think, is my um, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I know it's a little. Um, I'm more Princess Bride. I know it's a divisive. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not going to go into that argument. I mean, I'm a great advocate of like I love actually. I believe that anyone that hasn't seen Love Actually should not see another movie until they've seen Love Actually. Wow. I mean, the opening scene where he says that love is seen as unglorified and it's not in the news, but if you go to Heathrow Airport, I love that message, that all of those landing, all of the messages and phone calls are not of hate and violence. They're love messages. You, you call your father, you call your loved one, you call your girlfriend, you, right? It's wonderful. It's really, really inspiring, I find. Yeah, I do love an airport for that part of it in Happier Time. That part of the movie alone is enough, I think. So the next couple I will go through quickly. Get Out More, I think that's clear. Log Off, oh, that is a big ask. Do you actually log off? I do, I airplane mode. So I am still not a great sleeper. I have tried many things. And then I got to being a good sleeper and then my kids are still very young. My twins are three, so I still get woken up in the night a lot. So I listen to... If I'm feeling a lot of willpower, it'll be something meditation-based. And if I'm not, then it'll be a podcast that's a soothing voice. Melvin Bragg, he's very soothing. He has got me to bed many a time. (laughs) I'm glad I'm not on that list because if that's the case, I'd I'd feel boring. So hopefully not. (laughs) Melvin. (laughs) Um, I think, yeah, it's got to be a good thing. And I, you know, for productivity as well, I don't have the willpower to... um, the new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, I don't have the willpower myself to not be going, to be checking Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So I have to be off it if I want to really get stuff done. And it's either going on on airplane mode on my phone or turning off the Wi-Fi on my computer. Yeah, I, I do have to do that. How many hours a day do you end up online? Well, I am really strict and I am trying to, I'm very conscious that my kids will copy what I do. I was everything was on Kindle for years and now I'm trying to have actual books in the house because I think if they see if my kids see me reading a book they'll think oh mama's reading mm. reading's fine and if they see me writing and it's on a computer then that's okay I'm writing I guess but I don't want them to just see me on a screen and this is the ideal but I don't want them to be asking for me and they just see my face lit up by a screen so my kids are usually in daycare from eight till three or four and then you know all bets are off but I try not to do any stuff during the time that I'm with them they shouldn't see my phone Mm. is the hope yeah recently I've been working on something I call toxic internet so I've split the internet between swiping and typing which is all of the stuff that we let mindlessly yeah. I check Instagram because I have a lot of followers on Instagram and I need to respond to all of the messages and so on. And then very quickly, I find myself swiping into wasteland. It's like content that I'm really not interested in. And, you know, yeah. I don't know why they're showing me this stuff. And then I find that athletic looking woman doing squats and I click on it. I'm like, why did I click on this? Like, seriously, right? And so I distinguished them and I said zero swiping and typing. So I'm very, very mindful of I'm not going to do any waste, any mindless stuff. But then the rest of the stuff, I try to stick to two hours a day and I'm failing miserably. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, really, it's really, really. (laughs) On social media, so specifically social media. So I have like my Instagram set to no more than 30 minutes a day. I think I have all of social media can't be more than an hour a day. But I also don't... I like to, whilst I can, respond to people, as you are saying, because I just, I feel a real connection. And because I am trying to be yeah. honest and vulnerable, it means a lot when people share back yeah, to me. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. And I wouldn't like somebody to feel like that they were knocking at my door and I was just ignoring. Them. So I try to do that. But I don't really look at things other than messages at me. Mm. You know what I do that really, really makes a difference is I started to respond with voice messages. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a really nice idea. You know, not all platforms around allow it. I think LinkedIn doesn't. But it actually becomes a lot more personal. And then they respond back to me in a voice message, which is so connected and so human and so wonderful. Yeah. And basically it becomes, I mean, if I get a very complex question, it ends up being five minutes of recording something. And I don't mind if I make mistakes in the middle and I say something wrong with my weird English. And it's really, really much more connected. And you're right, you know, 
most beautiful part about what you and I do is just to feel connected to so many wonderful people. It's just amazing, really. Can we go into value your values? This is, yeah. um, okay, so let me list them. Huh? Look after yourself, very clear. By the way, you guys are reading this book, so I'm not going to tell you everything about it. Look after yourself is number five. Number six is value your values. That's another tall order. I mean, in a world today where we don't even know what our values are. But then I think, and you have talked about this as well, but I, then I think you have to take some time out to think about them. Mm. And, and I think for all of the challenges and the terrible times so many people are having emotionally and economically with the coronavirus, the one thing it has done is it has given people some time away from the noisiness of everyday life. And it may not have given them actual time because we're all still busy and trying to do things, but shutting out some of the noise so you can actually think about what your values are is really helpful. And of course, from a position of privilege and the kind of the hand to mouth thing is a reality for so many of us. And certainly as freelancers, loads of income has completely fallen off. But I think where possible, you're just going to sleep better at night and you're going to feel better and and you're going to feel like you're moving in the right direction. So, yeah, I've started recently trying to think about what matters to me and what I can do. And, you know, all the people that we know who even the most together are people who do something to give back. Oh, I love that. And we should do good things for their own sake, not just because they make us feel good, but science shows that they do make us feel good. And yeah, it's just the right thing to do. I think growing up doing the right thing, I was raised Catholic. And so you do the right thing, but mainly because you probably get punished if you didn't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I think it's taken a lot of work in adult life to think, I'll oh, do the right thing because it's the right thing to do for, you know, to be a nice human being. Yeah, because if you leave it down to your nature, this is exactly what you feel like doing really which is really the puzzling bit because every other one of your advices sort of like makes things easier but living your values in a world that is not really always prioritizing values if you want yeah. is probably a slightly harder thing i mean it takes a stand for someone to say no i'm not going to play that way we sort of have to believe in that otherwise mm. we're all in trouble yeah. and and I still believe people are essentially good you know if you saw someone in trouble you would try and save them because it's the right thing to do because in the split second that's what you do mm. not because you thought oh people will think I'm nice if I do this or I wonder what this will look like we still help an old lady up in the street I wish we would do more actually one of the things that really puzzled me about the time I spent in London was you know where I come from ladies and older people are given seats in public transport, not because women are less than men in any other way. In any way, it's actually because women are supposed to be cherished. You know, they're supposed to be respected like a gentleman would. So you give them their, your seat. There is no equality issue there. But when I got into the underground, in the, the tube, as you guys call it, in London, it was shocking for me how young 16-year-old kids, men, would just zoop, take the seats and sit down and then others are standing up and nobody really does things that are values driven anymore. And at the beginning, I was like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be seen as sitting when there are others standing. And then eventually I started a strategy where the minute I get into the tube, I book a seat and then I wait for someone to come in, elderly or a woman or whatever, and say, would you like to sit down, right? And it is quite interesting how I think the world not only I mean, I think the idea is we don't think of those things as values anymore. So we don't define them as important anymore. And so we don't live them. And basically your advice is sit down and reconsider, ask yourself what matters, right? Yeah, absolutely that. But I think that's really interesting in terms of your uh, kind of assessment of the tube etiquette, because I wouldn't expect, you know, pregnant or old or needing to sit down for any reason, then of course... And, you know, and you can get badges now that, you know, just say, I'm not, don't ask me why, just please, I need to sit down. But I, I wouldn't expect to have to sit down just for being female. And actually, having been in Denmark, there is no chivalry. You know, the Viking shield maidens were expected to be just as tough. And I've had door slam in my face. That was the real thing when I moved to Denmark. But in the UK, mostly people would hold open doors, male or female. And here that doesn't happen. If you drop your shopping, you're going to be picking it up alone. So for all the benefits of living Danishly, there's just different cultural approaches to genders and to etiquette and politeness. I mean, people are very direct in Denmark. Yeah. 
I'm not criticizing, actually. I mean, because of the amount of travel that I have done around the world, I'm just actually reiterating the idea of, yeah, it might not be the value of the place I'm in or the value of the group of friends I'm with or the value of the internet page I'm browsing, but it's important to uphold your own values regardless of how different they may be to the society you're in. Okay, so quickly, quickly, be nicer now. I think people know that. Do something just for the sake of it is the one I want to stop at. And then number 10 is take baby steps. But do something for the sake of it. So that's a little like the Greek moraki, the idea that actually we should be doing something because it pushes us out of our comfort zone, which is a very good thing to do. There's lots of sort of health benefits and lots of brain benefits to doing that. And it's not something that comes naturally to me at all. I am a terrible dancer. I can't follow moves or choreography. And it came at a point in my life where I sort of a little bit got bullied into joining a dance class, an experimental dance class. And it was as a British woman who went to a Catholic school, it was just so far. I mean, this is a podcast, it's no use, but I'm sort of rubbing my eyes in anguish. Um, It was so far out of my comfort zone. And I described it as like scuttling up and down like a terrified crab while these (laughs) amazing Italian women were just sort of sensuously expressing themselves and using their bodies the way nature intended. And I was not, but it's great. And I, I ended up having some of my best ideas in that class that I ended up going to for about three years. And there's so much evidence that we need to be doing this and we need to be, you know, we all know about the growth mindset. We need to be trying to be open to new things and trying and failing. And I think I had been so wedded to the idea of you do something and you practice and you read books about it and then you do it well. And it was very good. I think it's always very good to do something that isn't your field that, you know, my body was like a pillar for my head. And so to use my body was really useful. And likewise, people who end up using their bodies all day long, it's, it can be very stimulating to go and you know, look at a piece of art for two hours. I think it's doing something that you might not expect and, and just broadening ourselves in that way was really helpful. This is so, so eye-opening, actually. It's one challenge that I have. But when I, when I read that, I was much more thinking about the idea of do something for the sake of it, not for the results that come out of it. You know, my bigger challenge, to be honest, Helen, is that I, I'm very driven. Even when in my happiness mission, I'm like, you know, how many more? One billion, people? yeah. <laughs> how many more people did we make happy today? You know, why are we not progressing as we should? Which is really weird. And a month ago, I downloaded an app called IF, Intermittent Fasting. And simply, I decided I'm going to intermittent fast. I did it for quite a while, but I decided to measure it. And so, you know, I did the first fast on the first day. And then when they reported the results the next day, there was two columns in the result. One is what you intended to do. And the other is what you actually achieved. I was like, were those supposed to be different? I mean, do people not achieve what they intend to do? I swear to you, I'm not making this up. My brain was like, that's an interesting point of view. I can actually set a target of 16 hours and do 15 and a half? Is that allowed? And it shook me so much that, you know what? I will actually fail every fast. I literally skipped every single fast for the next week or two. It was like, I'd set 16 and do 14 and so proudly go like, yeah, yeah, I missed. And doing something for the sake of it, I think is the ultimate form of that. It's to say, look, I'm dancing not to win a competition. I'm dancing because I want to try dancing or I'm practicing this or I'm experiencing that. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way. You see, then that's really interesting. Uh, I thank you for sharing that. I think then, you know, talking about how did you write the books? It didn't occur to me that I didn't have an option. You know, I always make hand in my homework on time at school. I always meet book deadlines. I always meet journalism because I thought that's what you had to do. And largely, I think it is. But I was raised to be a good girl, which comes with its pros and its cons, that you are rewarded for for being a people pleaser and for doing the right thing in many ways. But it can be to the detriment of feeling liberated and living your values and doing things that make you feel free and relaxing, heaven forbid. So, yeah, I understand completely. I empathize with you on that one. And it is something that people who have come to it as a place that you and I do, that we have to learn, which it can be scary. It can feel odd to deliberately do something that you know you're not very good at. Yeah. The problem is, of course, I can imagine you. If you're forced to do something you're not very good at, you're going to be good at it. You're going to put like endless numbers of hours instead of just saying, I'm going to be fine here. You know, I'm going to try my best and that's it, right? Yeah. 
No, still not. I mean, honestly, by the end of three years, she'd introduce a new dance routine and I'd be absolutely livid thinking, can we not do the one where you sort of dance like a penguin? Because I've got that one. <laughs> Helen, you're still going after three years. I was still going. And yeah, and then twins came and that stopped it for a little while. But yeah, for three years I did go. And I, I will go again once I can kind of things calm down. But yeah, at one point we were dancing like sexy tractors. I don't know enough about either of those things to prove it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm guessing here. So one of the things that I'm, because I'm a gamer, is my daughter bought me something called Just Dance on the Xbox. Oh, yes. Where you actually dance with people across the world. And look at me like the serious happiness guy, you know, who's the CEO of this company and the former business officer of that company. And I'm like, dancing with Argentinians and Italians and you know some of them are six years old and some of them are 200 years old it's so much fun you see them as well you see their avatars and then you have the option of actually sharing a video of you that is like really made a little funny of course I have not come to the <laughs> to the courage of sharing my videos yet but it's so much fun to break out of next step strictly uh, totally I love our conversation. I could go for hours. You're so wonderful. I will have to ask you one more question. But before I do, I'll do my normal announcement. Do you guys know the announcement? If you're here, you love what Helen is talking about. So tell others to enjoy it too. And rate this thing five stars, please. Uh, Helen, you are a serious self-starter. And this is an incredible skill in the times we're in. Because one of the most important questions I get from people when we're in lockdown is, I just can't find a way to make the, my day productive. Some people are used to the idea of the day is scheduled for me, and so I'll be productive as a result of that. What are your top tips? I mean, what makes you so good at starting new things and getting them done? Firstly, thank you and bless you. And I'm not sure it's my superpower, but I think there is something I am very much an extroverted introvert. So yesterday I had to go to a school and be talking to children for four hours. And the first hour it was yeah, da, da, fine. And then after that, it just, by the end, I just had nothing. I sort of shut down like a robot and I needed to be by myself. So I'm very fortunate in that my job lets me do that for large bits of time. But I think I have learned as I get older and the longer I've been freelance to let fallow periods be without much guilt that it can be research if I'm listening to a podcast or if I'm walking and thinking and that then the last flurry of, of activity, maybe the last two hours of, of any working day are often the most productive because there's an awareness of a deadline and that something has to be done by then. And also I do set myself deadlines and I am a terrible obliger. So I will ask other people to set me deadlines. Sometimes it's been friends or, or sort of colleagues in the writing world. I'll say, you know, if I haven't done this by this certain date, then you have the ability to say that I'm not allowed to come out for dinner or whatever, but I will make sure that people are expecting things of me and I will do them, which is not to say that that's the best way of doing it, but I'm a self-starter because I feel like I have to produce something for someone. But yeah, definitely giving myself permission to, to ruminate and to think. And Kirsty Young, the presenter of Desert Island Discs, would call it staring at the wall and dribbling time. There's sometimes the just being fallow and just thinking is really valuable and helps to crystallize because otherwise I could certainly drink coffee solidly all day and be busy and produce stuff, but it might not be any good. So to make it good, I sort of need a bit of time first. Such a profound advice. So let me repeat this as an engineer. You start by saying something good is going to come out by, let's say in eight hours or in eight days or in eight weeks, it doesn't matter. But what matters is that once you set that target, you're going to get there, but you don't measure every hour on the way. It doesn't mean I have to work at eight hours to get there. I have to allow myself, I need to chase that target, but there will be a lot of time where I'm sort of working inside my head, not working and producing. And so what you're saying is it's actually okay for time to go by feeling unproductive as long as the final product is produced within the set quality and set time. Yeah, you've said that far more eloquently than me, thank you. And I think actually the writer Paul Theroux told his son Louis Theroux that when you write a book, you've already done a good proportion of it in your head and trust that. And I think that really helps me a lot as well because when I would sit down and you've got the horrors of the blank page or the blank screen and you think it's okay, I have something to say, that's why I've sat down here today. Or I've stood up here today. Also, I stand, I write standing up quite a lot. Is that true? 
Yes. So uh, just trusting myself a bit more, I think. How long do you write? Do you actually sit to write? I mean, sit or stand, but how much are you writing of a typical day? Um, I mean, it completely varies, but I don't think I could be solidly writing, producing anything of value on a book for more than about four hours a day. But if it's a journalism piece and I have to do research and phone calls that day and then writing, then I would spend the entirety of there with loo and food breaks. I need you to do eight hours a day because I want you to write more books, but I understand. I will. But also, it's a very physical thing for me. Like, I sweat. I sweat a lot as I write. I mean, I can t- it's like I've worked out and I've worked hard by the end of the day. I mean, all of my cl- I mean, everything will just need washing. But it's nothing. I think when I was little and I imagine writers sitting in a wicker chair with a quill, perhaps, and with tumble down hair and a floral dress. Mm-hmm. And it's not like that. It's, it's sweat. It is it's, a lot of hard work. I like that. Though. It's I good. I love that. I mean, I think one of the most enjoyable parts of writing for me is I almost know for certain. So I'm like you. When I start writing a book, I've already written what I call the nested flow chart for it. I have every single part of the book, at least as a skeleton, clear in my head. And then I start writing and all of that goes to, like literally, there is not a single time I wrote a chapter and not almost entirely changed it after I wrote it the first time. And there is a a joy of resilience, if you want, because it gives you the freedom to write whatever you want the first time, knowing that there will be another path. And somehow it's the joy of being challenged to tell yourself, nah, this is not good enough. We're going to do this again. And so what? It's just another four hours tomorrow. I love that idea. I would also add just sort of three more things that I do quite a lot is that I use post-it notes. So, I mean, I have many of these, but I have walls of post-it notes and things will get moved around and that helps a lot. I accept that the first draft of anything is going to be terrible. And I always overwrite and then I cut back. Put it on a post-it note. We need that. We need it. Yeah. Post-it's really helpful. I can send you a picture of the wall in my studio. It's just post-its. My brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like you. I mean, if you count the number, I use a um, Google Keep, which is basically a bunch of electronic post-its, but you can take them with you anywhere on every device. And I have thousands of them, like thousands and thousands and thousands. Like there isn't a day that passes without me putting maybe three or four new notes, which could be a page long each. And yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know what's wrong with that brain. There's constantly something coming out. Such a gift. I mean, it's, I just, I'm so grateful for that. What a joy to be alive. The time when our brains are going, oh, interesting. <laughs> and then I will scribble it on analog because I'm old school and you'll do something technical. How wonderful is that? Isn't that amazing? Okay, so here's the idea. How to be sad. When is the deadline? It's coming out. It's done. It's coming out on March the 4th okay. with Fourth Estate and a podcast coming with it. And it's everything I learned about getting happier by being sad better. Because as I said about the jolly thing, I was very resistant to sad for the longest time, despite life throwing many hurdles my way. And I have, as all of us will have, I've suffered you know, bereavement and losses and mental health issues. And it's sort of coming to terms with that. And it's sort of geographical and historical romp around the world in a pursuit of a better way of, of handling our emotions, good and bad, because I think we are not always good at the bad ones. I love that. I love all of your work. I loved, loved our conversation. It is so wonderful, Helen. Likewise. And I'm really grateful for your time. I want to give you a deadline for the next book, if you don't mind, because you seem to work well with deadlines. Make it April. And uh, for everyone listening, guys, I really love Helen's work. I really think you would benefit from reading all of it. So uh, give it a shot. And uh, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mo. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.